29% Equal is a podcast celebrating significant women who have shaped how we practice architecture today. Produced by me, Sarah Ackland. I'm a practicing architect and PhD researcher studying gendered bodies in public space. So why 29% Equal? Well, the last formal survey undertaken by the ARB, or the Architects Registration Board, was in 2019. This revealed that only 29% of qualified architects are female identifying. Women are routinely excluded from the architecture profession, from the books we read and even the references and precedents that we study at university. In an effort to eliminate this erasure of women, I have asked a young architect, designer, artist or activist from Park W and some of their friends to have a discussion with a woman they feel deserves recognition, or perhaps more recognition. We ask these amazing women about their defining moments, their activism, who inspires them, the advice that they would give to their younger selves, and finally, what a more equitable city might look like. Hi, and welcome back to 29% Equal in conversation with Part W. In this episode, Tara Ballade, a friend of Part W, architect and co-founder of Ballade Design Studio and Paradigm Network, speaks with the inspired Angela Brady. Irish-born Angela is an architect and co-founded her studio, Robin Melieu, over 30 years ago. She led as president at the RIBA from 2011 to 2013 and co-founded the RIBA Architects for Change group. Angela shares her positivity for women in the profession, how co-founding with a partner can be progressive and suggests methods we can use to tackle climate change. Amongst much of the wisdom she shared with Tara, Angela argues that we should all adopt a school to increase the diversity of our profession, which I wanted to note here. This podcast has been created with thanks to the RIBA Research Fund and supported by Katie Lloyd-Thomas of Newcastle University. Here's Tara and Angela. Hope you enjoy it. Angela, what an honour to meet you. And I just wanted to say that actually I remember when you were running for president, because I'd recently qualified as an architect and it was such an important time in my career personally, in terms of trying to decide next steps. And actually to, to see and feel and hear the buzz in the city of you running for RIBA president was truly amazing. And so first of all, I wanted to actually start by saying thank you <laughs> for doing that. <laughs> thank um, you. Because you, you inspired so many of us to follow such ambitious paths. So I just wanted to start with that. And these the questions I have sort of range from sort of you working in practice, but your career as well. And I guess I wanted to start with why. Why you first started practice, and then we might move to the RIV, or we will. But first of all, why you started practice, what was the impetus was, and how and what that journey was like for you. Yeah, hi Tara. Great to meet you, to e-meet you as they say. I think that you know, when I first wanted to do architecture, you know, I was in school, not knowing what I wanted to do. So I applied for lots of different things from optician to <laughs> any of the paramedicals I was interested in to be a physiotherapist, you know, from my dad's side, who was a medic, to my mum's side, who was an artist. And I, I thought that I wasn't allowed to go to art college because they thought artists never earn any money. and I'd find it very hard you know, to make my way in life. And then architecture. You know, I really didn't think I'd get in because there are only two schools in Dublin or there were two schools at the time. And one of them was high academic points. So all the brainy kids, you know, regardless of their artistic ability, would go for that and get in. Interestingly, there were, no, there were more women that got in in that school because you didn't do an interview. So you can tell there could be some bias there. Whereas in Bolton Street, you had to have a portfolio of drawings, photographs, artwork, whatever it was, but a portfolio, an interview. You had to do an aptitude test, which was from your mathematics to your spatial relations to 3D objects. And they were easy, I thought. So got to the interview and then one is as charming as one can be and showing off the portfolio and why you want to be an architect and why there are so few women. So I actually got in and I surprised myself, which was, I suppose, the first thing that I felt confident. Then the next thing is, how the hell am I going to get through five years? You know, you know, but it was a real joy to get into a career that I had on my list and I never thought I'd get in, but I did. Amazing, amazing. And I guess going in, did you find 
How, like, I'm quite curious about the split of women to men, actually, just because you, you touched upon it there. So I wanted to understand maybe the split between women to men when you, when you got into university and whether you found a kinship and an allyship in, in that. Yes, that's a very good question, because in Bolton Street, now called Technical University Dublin, but in Bolton Street, there were only 10%. So of the 50, you know, we had five. Oh, no, there were even less than that. But anyway, there was, there was 10% women. And we did get together and we did kind of make sure we stick up for ourselves. But there was always that underlying sexism that was there. And that was generally from the old professors, the older boys. And I remember one particular instant, the girls were saying that this particular professor said, why are you girls even in this class? You're only going to give up and have babies and you're oh. wasting the place that could be given to a man. So that kind of, I'd never heard this kind of sexism before. And I thought, hmm, something needs to be done about this. And then in second year, when I failed my second year on one of my technical issues and a couple of subjects, and I had to do a repeat. And when I went in for you know the interview to say whether you passed or not, and I was sure I'd passed, my, my projects were, were better than half the class, but... And the, the, two, the two of the old boys there said, you know, Angela, he said, the women have got to be better than the men to get through architecture. And I just thought, he said, he said if you were a man, you'd have passed. And then I thought, this is, and I, I didn't have the, what you call it, I suppose, I didn't have, I was very shy, and I, and I didn't really have the guts to say, what the hell are you talking about? That's sexism, because it, we weren't so aware of it. But we were all talking about it, we were all saying, so that made me more determined than ever to work harder, to, you know, to really push myself, but didn't have a problem from the, for the rest going through. But always, I think that, you know, when you're campaigning or when you're sticking up, you've got to have a positive message. You can't say, oh, we're not doing it because we're women, they're being down on us. So, so you have to really say, we are as good, if not better than the men. And we've got to stick up for ourselves. And that's what I learned really from second year, or we're in first year too, but when I, what I learned from an early age is you really got to be determined. You've got to just, just stick together, stand up for your rights, stand up for yourself. And then, so that was early training, you could say. <laughs> that's fantastic. And I think that's why, you know, even just hearing of you without actually meeting you in person, you, you can tell that you have that energy that's inherent in, in who you are and what you do. That understanding, unfortunately, that, you know, that there is this concept of needing to work twice as hard or definitely harder to be recognized than in when you were at university. I can only imagine the the gravity of what that would have been like. You touched on something there, which I think is really interesting in that you want to make change, yet you have to do it with a smile on your face. So I'm curious about this understanding of, or where you sit between, under the banner of activism, where you sit under protest versus advocacy. And if you are keen on one versus the other, or take an approach that in incorporates both, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, well, I think this came up because in and around 2000, when Architects for Change was set up with people like Sumita Sinha, who chaired the group, and, the, and a whole group that had come together, which were the minority groups, you could say. So it was SOBA, Society of Black Architects. It was Women in Architecture. It was the Disabled Group. It, was, it wasn't quite the LGBT group then, but, you know, they were there. And it was anyone that had some, any prejudice. So we thought that, look, let's not moan about it. Let's say how great we are. And then we decided to have this, which I curated, the Diverse City Exhibition. And that was to promote the diversity of people in our profession and attract more people in. And another way that we said that we could do this, you know, we'd all have an exhibition, you know, we'd have a panel, we'd, have, we'd, we'd show what we do, and we'd say, what does diversity mean to you? You know, three, three things, and it was all on the panels. And this was a modest exhibition that we put up at the RBA. 50 panels had the launch in 2003. And then we got a call from the USA. Oh, we love your exhibition. We saw it on, on the website. Can you bring it over to California? So we said, yes, but we don't have any funds. If you send us the tickets, you know, we'll come over. So went off, off we went, brought the exhibition with us. And then it went to three cities in, in America, Boston and Chicago. And then we got a call from China. They'd seen it on the, on the website. Can we bring it over to Beijing and Zhengzhou? 
who said, yeah, if you pay, you know, if you pay for it to come. <laughs> and, the, and then they printed it out over there and they said they wanted their people to go in. I said, yes, they had a competition. So we had 200 entries in for the 10 places for, for so it took a few days. Yeah. Um, and, and then it just expanded and it went, it went, it went all around the world, 34 cities over five year period, including Australia, India, Middle East, all over Europe, all over UK. Dublin, of course. And what was great about it is it was a positive message of our contribution as our diverse group, our contribution to voices in architecture, to buildings in architecture, and as promoters to the next people coming up, the next generation. So then that led on to the schools, the Adopt-A-School, where we would have role models going in to schools and running workshops. So we didn't have to say oh, we're women or we're black women or whatever. We, we were just there and we, we would be there and we would be doing workshops. And then the kids would say, oh, I want to be an architect. Are, are all architects women? You know, you have the strangest questions that would come from the kids, but they loved it. And it was lovely to have the contribution of kids doing some magnificent work, you know, yeah. doing things that architects in third year would be doing. They were doing these things. So it was super to see the engagement of the Architects for Change group with Building Exploratory Hackney, directly with secondary and primary schools. And that's still going on. So I've been doing that for 20 years and it's great fun. Amazing, and amazing. And you touch on so many, so many aspects there. My mind is, uh, <laughs> mind is racing. But one, the one thing that you hi- highlighted, which I, you know, I find to be true, is that when you came to advocate and protest and make change, it's, it was quite an inclusive process. You looked beyond just women in architecture and, and you highlighted, for example, Soba at the time. You highlighted those who were disabled as well. And this inclusivity in what I tend to find in a lot of women's movements, I think is quite extraordinary that it's never just one topic, but it tends to embrace the complexities actually of what activism and protesting can be to, to bring change. And I think that's amazing to be able to bring in as part, as part of your process. A couple of things that sprung out of there, you, you highlighted that in 2003, you did this great exhibition, took you around the world. If we're jumping to today, if this exhibition was done next year, 2023, what do you think that would look like? What, I guess the question I'm asking is, what type of change do you think has happened in the last few decades, I guess? And is it as far as you thought would, we would be at this point? Is it slower than you thought we would be? Are you expecting us to do more? <laughs> Have we taken the button and run with? I'm curious to see your thoughts there. Well, interestingly, the RIBA China Group, which I helped to set up, they have put out a call for the women in architecture, and it's exactly, it's almost identical to our diverse city call in, 20, in 2003. So 20 years later, it is coming, and now you can actually see direct comparisons if you look at the percentage of women. You know, when we were starting Architects for Change, I was one of the people that was going to the RBA complaining, saying, why don't you do things for women in architecture? Why isn't there a group? And then Sumita said, well, Angela, you feel so passionate about it. We want you to be chair of Women in Architecture. And then that, that I kind of, I wasn't expecting it. So I said, okay. <laughs> so, 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 so from then we were 10% women in, in practice and about 28% in university, I guess, if you count the, I don't know, I, don't, I can't remember the exact number of, of schools. I think there were 28 schools of architecture. And if you look at the numbers now, we're between 18 and 22% women in architecture, whether it be private practice or whether it be larger practice or smaller practice, depending on how it goes. And it's about 50-50 in university. So the numbers themselves, although it's been very slow to move, they are improving. And the more women and black and ethnic minority women and men that we have in our profession, the more people will come into it and feel welcome and and the better our architecture will be because we are all meant to be representing our communities and that's the very best way to do it is to have the diverse profession but but today i think that there have been a lot a lot of improvements you know when i used to go on the building site you know when i first came to london i, I would i was working on quite big projects you know 5 million pound housing projects 
with Shepard Epstein Hunter and I'd go to site and of course most of the people would be Irish builders or brickies and I'd say how are you yeah, Sean however now how do you do that detail and he said you know Angela he said you're the first architect that's ever spoken to me on site so so you know because we engage and I wanted to know more about it, and he wanted to know more and we were trying to do a corner and you know so you're learning from each other all the time and it was yeah. just to break down those barriers and just to have it that you know you're an architect but you're part of the team and if you want and I, I would compliment you know builders on, on, on whether it be a nice bit of brickwork or planter or whatever it is and to get to be to have that engaging I think is something that Women in particular are very good at, you know, communication skills. But I think that, you know, today things are vastly better than they were 20 years ago. But we haven't we haven't got to parity yet. There are still a lot of barriers. You know, childcare is still one of the biggest things. You know, the average age for women architects to have kids is 34 years of age because they try and get their career on the first step first. But I think one of the things that I think a lot of women in architecture have, have found great value and equality in, in is the husband-wife teams, of which I am a husband-wife team. So we started our practice when we were 29, you know, so quite early in our careers. After having a bit of experience, you know, I worked overseas, I worked in Denmark, I did a scholarship there, came to London. There was a shortage of architects, loads of jobs, you had a choice get a bit of experience and then go out on your own. And then you're calling the shots from your perspective of what way you want to run your practice. So my advice to people is try and get out on your own as quickly as you can. But that takes the power of good communications because if you've got good communication skills, you will be a better architect. If you are able to listen to your clients, you will have far more knowledge then presuming you know an answer. You have to engage and ask. And that's the advice I always give to young architects is learn to listen, engage, and get your communication skills out there. And that's, you know, when you're going out and you're not just mixing with architects. It's a very bad idea just to mix with architects. You need <laughs> We're to so good a, at doing that. <laughs> you need to get out there and all walks of life. And I think one of the good ways is if you go and you do classes and you do art classes, that's something that I love to do. And you meet a completely different non-architectural group of people. And that's what I love. It's, it's just being in a completely different environment and having great friends there. Amazing, amazing, fantastic. You're touching it there. I want to, I guess, dive a little bit deeper into your career and starting practice. You run practice with your partner and I'm curious how that conversation started. Is that something you've always known you'll do? Start practice, run it with, with a partner? Is that something that evolved? Where did you, I'm curious, where did you meet? Yeah, yeah. What was that conversation like? Why did you decide to make the leap into starting practice at the time that you did? Well, I think I've always wanted to call the shots in terms of doing our own projects rather than working for somebody else. So when I was working for four years at Shepherd Epstein Hunter, Robin, my partner, Robin Malley, was able to start because we had lots of contacts mm -hmm. and we had a few small jobs. So we said, look, now is the time maybe to start Brady Malley, see how it goes. I'll mm -hmm. stay in my job, you know, four days a week, which we did four day a week, four long days. And then we just started our own practice. And then I moved across and then we got bigger jobs with a huge network. I mean, the Irish community is huge for a start. And as you know, a lot of the developers are Irish, like Jay Murphy and son, the Murphy Group, Lee Moore, Durkham Brothers. So a lot of those people were looking for an architect, maybe an Irish architect, somebody who understands their building, their building and everything like that. And so we've got a lot of quite very, you know, quite big projects in the first few years. And you only need one or two projects. And then you can employ a few people and so we were quite steady. I mean, we've got about, I don't know, 300 projects under our belt at this stage over 30 years. Not all of them have been built, clearly, but they're still projects that were live projects. And, and I think it's, it's nice that if you, you know, if, you're, if you have complementary skills with your partner. So that's what we have. And we've got some good staff that have been with us for 20 years. So I, I would advise people that if, they, if, they, if it's something they want to do, I would say go out on your own as soon as you can. Once you have a few steady jobs and then 
you know, going for competitions, get publicity. Publicity is really important. Get your stuff published. It's, it's easier these days because you can also self-publish. You can put your stuff up on Instagram and, and your social media and have a good website. But to, to be in the Architects Journal or the Weeby Journal or other, other you know, design, it's, it's quite good. And then you can build on that. Yeah, but it's, it's a great profession and it's a great profession for women. But I think my, my motto has always been that men and women together make the best architecture and place. And architecture isn't all about the building. It's the people that are using the building. So we, we've always kind of said that we're architects with a social conscience, that the type of buildings we choose, we're not trying to do big iconic buildings to ourselves. We're trying to really make a difference to community grassroots level up. Fantastic. No, I feel that spirit. You highlighted that you have a team and staff who've been with you for 20 years, which shows extraordinary leadership for someone, for a group of people to commit to your vision for that period of time. I'm curious as to your leadership style and if you were passing on that advice. So beyond start practice, what would you ask a young practice owner <laughs> or a recent practice owner to focus on when it comes to leadership to ensure that they have the right team working with them for x number of years i think it's i think it's like it's like a family you know it's always like a family within a practice that everyone's trying to do the best for the practice being careful you you know but not 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 too meticulous in in in, in every little thing being meticulous in the way a project is done and then building on on previous projects, building your skills. But I think I think it's just not being the boss and people reporting to the boss. It's working together, and I think it's teamwork. Everything is teamwork. And I think that when if you win an award for something, you know, we would say, you know, Andrew Carr, project architect. So we're actually saying that, you know, you know, or Sarah, whoever it is, has been involved in a project. We're not taking all the credit, like you see in so many practices. And so many, particularly male-dominated practice, they will not give recognition to the team, to the team or the project architect or whatever it is. And I think that that people like to work in in firms where they get recognition for their hard work. And and we are also ones that do not, we do not want people working over a thirty-eight hour or forty-hour week because you have to have a, an outside. You know, people have families, you know, people, you know, you have to have a life outside the office just to be a happier person. You can't be just all focused on the office. And I think it's important to be able to turn off when it comes to six o'clock, seven o'clock, be able to just say, OK, that's I've done that. Leave that for tomorrow. You know, go and enjoy yourself. No, that was <laughs> but I think sociability is a very important thing in our in our. It always has been. I've always been a great organizer of, you know, big parties, events, gatherings, whatever it was. And we used to have the softball tournament. In fact, that's where I met Robin, my husband. He was working for another practice. And we had this 10-team tournament in Regent's Park. And we called it the Golden Sock. I started when I was working at GMW and then continued it on for about 12 years. But it was just, it was just such fun to, you know, we'd have QSs and structural engineers and architects. We would have a whole mixture of, of the teams that we work with. And it means that, you know, when you all go to the pub afterwards, that you're, you're actually, you know, it's not all business. It's actually relaxing and pleasure. And that's how you can build relationships with other firms as well. Because you think, oh, I, need, I know, who knows a QS? Or, oh, I know people or, you know, and, and then you build up those teams. But it's, it's fun to have, you know, a sporting side or an art side. You know, sometimes I would organize the art of the architects and do a show like that or a fundraiser. And then when I was the Architects Benevolence, president of the Architects Benevolence Society, I was able to do an art fundraiser, which I held in our office. And that was such fun, you know, getting people to donate great pictures and then to auction them off for charity, which was which was fun. Fantastic. I expected that that would be the case in a particularly female-led practice, that there's this real focus on the health and well-being of the team and this shared spotlight that it's not just about the leaders of the practice as you say but it is the project architects or architectural assistants the the team very much being part of 
So mine mm. is joint. Mine isn't female-led. Mine well, is joint. Team led. Is what I meant. So I mean, partially, <laughs> partially female-led. Apologies. And you know that we know that there's there's statistics that that backs that up in, in terms of the types of workplaces, even when it comes down to profitability as well as well as that feeling of security and growing confidence of team. But actually, through to profitability of companies because they do have women in senior positions of leadership. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to pivot back to the RIVA and your your time in the RIVA. Specifically, I'm quite keen to understand why you decided and chose to run for president of the RIVA, the main barriers and challenges you faced at the time. And I'm asking loads of questions at once. And if, in your view, you felt you were able to move the needle or make the change that you wanted to make while you were at the RIVA? Mm. Yeah, well, I was asked would I stand because, you know, if ever there was something coming up with women in architecture, I would be there, you know, quite firmly campaigning. So it was a previous president, it was Sunan Prasad, actually, that asked me would I stand. And I said, oh, no, 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 I probably wouldn't get in anyway. And, you know, I'm very busy in my practice. And then he asked me again. And then I thought, well, I could probably throw my hat in the ring. I won't win, but I'll just, I'll just go for it anyway, because I said, you know, I could do it. So anyway, there were three of us going for it. And it was, this was in 2010 for the 2011, you know, it goes in in September 2011. So I thought if I'm going to campaign, I better campaign on certain things. And at the time, one of them was more women and diversity in our profession. Another one was procurement reform. And that was, you know, there was just how you get a job and is it all going to the big boys? What about the small to medium sized practice? And then the other one was looking after our students. And I suppose of all of those things, I did, I got in, you know, I won by a good majority. But, you know, I had never sat on council. So I was kind of springing in. I don't think they knew what hit them when I got there. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that I was in an office, you know, you have your own office on the second floor. So I said, okay, I'm going to paint one of the walls the brightest pink that there is because I don't really want black and white. So I had the diversity color wall. It was also the same color as the Olympics, the Paralympics color. And also, I think because the Olympics was on and they wanted somebody who was good in media. Mm -hmm. And I, at this stage, had two TV shows under my belt. So I, was, I had done a lot of TV stuff and I, would, I really wanted to highlight the, our, our champions of design. And yeah, so I got in and it was a bit of a battle with the kind of old boys network that was already there. But then, you know, with persuasion and that, you kind of break that down, you get people on your side, you get all these kind of things. I made sure that all of my panels and committees were at least 50-50. They were diverse and had 50% women on them. And the students, there was the problem with the unpaid internships. Yeah. Most people will, will say, well, one of the good things you did, Angela, was you banned unpaid internships, which still stands today, because I just was so against the exploitation of our young people, and particularly the big firms that were just taking them in and say, oh, I want to have the experience of such and such. I said, no, you are being exploited. I wouldn't employ you because you've let yourself be exploited. So they put that firmly in place. And there's people, when they have their practice certificate, they, it's written on there, all staff will be paid. And particularly, it has to be the minimum, the, the London wage. So you can't just pay them not, you know, peanuts. It has to be that. But one of the things then during the Olympics we came across was the, the way that the Olympics were set out. I wanted to interview the architects on site, film them and put this out. And then we hit this hurdle. So only the sponsors who had paid, that's one architect and one engineer who I won't name, they were the only ones allowed to say, oh, I designed this building, I designed this building, I designed that. Everybody else was actually banned. There was a ban, okay, a ban on them saying. So we had this campaign called Drop the Ban, which I spearheaded. And we got all of the architects down to the RIBA on Twitter, you know, come down before 12 o'clock, before anybody bans us, get down and we will have a protest outside the RIBA. I had a poster four meters, five meters long, which we dropped out of my window 
right down the front, naming all the architects, engineers, landscapers, everybody to do with the design. We, we were on the 10, BBC 10 o'clock news, standing outside. I had some past presidents lined up, so we had a whole group of people. And then I made this protest dress. And the dress was the same as the T-shirts that Peter Murray from New London Architecture Centre, he had done the T-shirts. So I said, give me the T-shirt with all the names. I'll stick it on a dress. <laughs> And then my daughter and I did, you know, you know these iron-on um, yeah. stickers. I had Zaha Did's building. I had, you know, all the buildings all stuck on the dress. And then I had the three, the three of us, which was the, the, the head of the structural engineers, then Peter Murray and myself, with, with stickers on our face, over our mouth, you know, the, the, I should say, tape over our mouth. And we were pretending to be handcuffed, standing outside the RIBA, dropped the ban. So that went viral, and then it was in most of the magazines. But, but it was a real challenge. But I managed to come, go down to site with a couple of my camera, TV camera, well, not TV, but the experienced, experienced camera people <laughs> down to site, and I arranged over two days to have all of the architects and engineers, landscapers, in front of their building at a specific time. We were very careful in how we did it. We had permission during the Paralympics to go on site. And I interviewed them all for 10 minutes to talk about their building. Mm -hmm. It is the only footage there is of them. So I have Asif Khan walking around his beautiful Coca-Cola building. When you touch it, the music plays. I had Jim Eyre outside the basketball, beautiful building that they did. These are all temporary buildings that were taken down. Mm -hmm. So nobody has got the footage. We've got it now, you know, part of the RBA archive. And it was lovely to be able to say, you know, we did it, we got them, we got them. And then, of course, the ban was dropped later, but that was too late. Yeah. But it was just nice to have a, a, an active campaign like that with everybody behind us. And the fact that it was, you know, the structural engineers and the architects and the new London architect working together. I thought that was a great achievement for the, for the team doing that. Absolutely. Brilliant. And interestingly, <laughs> the dress is now in the Museum of London. <laughs> How fantastic. So I was, giving, I, was giving, <laughs> I was giving a talk at one of the breakfasts for the Women's Business Network and Sharon Armit from the museum was in the audience and she said, after I'd given my talk and I mentioned the dress, she said, Angela, I have one question. Would you be willing to donate your dress to the protest fashion section oh, in the Museum of London? Amazing. So I just said, yes. <laughs> She said, next time you see it, you'll have to wear white gloves. Yeah. <laughs> How extraordinary. How absolutely extraordinary. So would you encourage an up-and-coming female architect to run for RIA president next? Yes. I was the second one. Ruth Reed was the first, and then Jane Duncan after me. And I think that, I think women make great leaders. I really do, because, the, you know, they listen. They're not looking for oh, glory for myself. They're, they actually... You know, we do want to hear what we can do together. And that's what's important. And I, and I think, again, with communication skills and everything like that, I think that we do a good job. And we, there need to be more. There need to be more. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And particularly with the, with the ability to, even in, a, in an establishment, I guess as established as the RIBA, to be able to protest <laughs> to, oh very to important be, <laughs> stand up to... for you you know stand up for what you believe in it's critical exactly and again moving to to today's date if we're if we're stepping out and protesting what do you think the top topics for you would be of course at the moment the climate emergency is a critical one and there's a lot of protest there's a lot of advocacy going on about the climate emergency insulate britain are there any other topics that you feel are right at the front of what we need to be focusing on right now? It's all about climate. And we as architects are the people that can make the difference. There's one group that we're involved with called Green Skibbereen in Cork in Ireland. And they are a community group. They've come together, they're great at protesting against various things that are not very green or eco. And they've been given this building, a huge building in Cork, to actually, if you can make a, if you can do something in five years that helps people understand what they can do for retrofitting. 
you know, demonstration on this is what an air source heat pump does. This is what solar panels do. This is the building in action. Um, this is self-build. And it's really community-led for communities to engage and see what they can do to cut their carbon, cut their footprint, make their, well, cut your bills is, is the most important thing these days. If you can cut your energy bills and, and have a demonstration of how to do it. And they've everything there from, so we're helping them get their projects off the ground by just doing our vision, our vision documents, you could say, to help them raise funds. So we do that with a lot of groups, grassroots groups, we don't have a lot of money. So we help them see what they can do, whether it be a town or a village, a specific project, but retrofitting is key. And that's why I would back anybody that says, you know, to the government, drop the VAT on, on refurbishment, make it in parity with new build. It's key. But we've been saying this, but nobody's listening in government. You know, it's unfortunate the government we have at the moment, but I won't get into the politics of it. But it's just unfortunate the government that we have and that we don't have a stronger opposition. Mm, absolutely. And I think that's why sort of organisations like Letty, Architects Declare, ACAN are so important because I, I feel you're absolutely right. We, we, we've known about the climate emergency for so long. Protests have happened. Advocacy has happened. Yet to try and move us in to a point where we actually take it seriously and it affects our everyday work has been such a challenge. So organizations like that, that I think um, adopt a, a more bottom-up approach to encourage architects to actually just design better irrespective of what policy says and irrespective of sort of waiting for the government to wake up has, but without going into politics, uh, <laughs> yeah. I think has yeah, been yeah. Uh, super, super important for us. But, but no, we do need more yeah. women. We do need more women in politics who have got that mindset, who can actually see this is, this is our future and our next generation's future. And we as architects and landscapers and designers, you know, in, in our total profession, we're the ones that can make a difference. And we just need to be listened to. And we need to be able to say, to, to set the agenda of this is how you do it. This is how you retrofit. This is how you cut your, your reliance on energy. And we can do it. And, and that's why I always say going into schools, because those kids tell their parents. And then if everybody just gets the mindset that we can all make a difference, there should be more TV programs on it. There should be more radio and more stuff. That's a, that's a positive. What can I do to make a difference? Because if we all do that, then a huge difference can be made. Yeah, what, yeah. one of the little things that I've, I've been doing over the past, I don't know, 15 years maybe, is the eco-check pack. And the eco-check pack I put up on Twitter and Instagram, it's just weekly ways, 52 ways to go green. It's simple things that we can all do, whether it be planting a tree and watching it grow so you're in touch with nature, well, how to make energy savings in your home, linking into all the good websites. And if you do these with the kids and they're illustrating their card that's got to go up on the fridge for that week, it's these simple things that we can all do just to make us continually aware. But I think that as architects, we need to campaign louder on this issue because I do believe we are the ones that can really make the difference complete agreement and it's amazing just to experience you as a campaigner through and through and an advocate through and through it's, <laughs> it's in every sentence and it's extraordinary to, to see that architects can be such a strong advocates and really stand up for what we believe in which is brilliant i'd love to ask you angela of a forgotten woman who has inspired you and your work well, it's interesting, this, because I am, I am part of the Ina Boyle Society. Now, the Ina Boyle Society is actually about music. And Ina Boyle is, you know, she was born probably, let me see when she was born. I think she was born in 1890. She was born in, in 1889 and died in 1967. And she was a composer, you know, she, she was somebody who traveled in, in, the, in the interwar years, traveled to the UK to get lessons from Vaughan Williams, and she was really good. But because she was a woman, she was held back. And she wrote about 80 different, whether it be choral stuff or operas, whatever it is. People in Trinity College in Dublin now are writing the script, the hand scripts into real music. And there's a songbook coming out. Her music has now been played all over the world. 
And it's just that the Ina Boyle Society, which has just, just become a charity, they, they are looking for lost women, you know, people who, who, who have been lost in history. Yeah. And they are out there, or I should say they're hidden. And it's a matter of just seeking them out and bringing them and giving them the recognition they deserve, even though they are, they're gone. But I think that it gives, it, it, it gives more power to young musicians coming up or young creatives, whatever it is, just to think, you know, you've really got to push, you've really got to get your colleagues to, to back you or to back other people or push yourself forward. Don't hold back because there's always some, some young buck that's coming through, <laughs> pushing, them, pushing themselves forward. So we mustn't be shy, we support each other, push them forward. But there are lots, there are lots. And Eileen Gray, for example, is always a fantastic um, designer, architect. Again, she didn't receive, receive much recognition herself. But if you think of things like, you know, the Corb recliner or, or, or you, think, you think of all of these, you know, Charlotte Perriand in 1928 designed the Corb recliner, as it's called. Um, but Corb got all of the recognition. <laughs> if you look at the BBC programme, you know, the, Bills, the, the Brits who built the modern world and Patty Hopkins was airbrushed out so there were only five men there. You know, it's all of these things. If you look at Venturi in 1991, won the uh, Pritzler Prize and Denise Scott Brown was ignored. And I, and I actually have a quote here. She said, they owe me not a Pritzler Prize, but a Pritzler inclusion ceremony. Let's salute the notion of joint creativity. And I think that's wow. the whole thing. You know, you can't say, oh no, it was him. You know, he's the man, he's the one that designed. When we all work in different ways, jointly and complementary, that it's a dual thing. And I think that we need more joint creativity recognition and don't just look to seek, oh, we've only got one prize. There's lots of people that can put their hand on that and, and, have, and have something that's joint. So yeah, let's not leave out people. Let's, let's look to the team. And I know that's a very woman thing to say, but I'd like to hear more men say it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think even even with that point that I feel like when I look around, the society around us is getting that message louder and clearer, perhaps, than maybe the architectural industry are, because we had a, a big push for women in tech or women in STEM. And yeah. I get to see women in tech and women in business and women in STEM and architecture. We're still having this conversation, which is really interesting. So there's there's so much to be learned from even just the wider society, if we are able to open our eyes and uh, take advantage of that. Yeah. Can I ask, Angela, what does an equitable city look like to you? Well, I think that's where everybody feels safe 24-7, that you don't have privatization of public space, parks mm -hmm. only for the wealthy, that you have a city that you can feel free to move about and preferably not in a car. It's where women can go jogging or walk home after a party late at night and feel safe, where children feel they're not going to get knocked down or that they can play in a park in a safe space. I think we have a long way to go. We're very lucky in London. I think I'm quite lucky in Hackney, where I live, that there is a lot of free space, safe space, beautiful space. In fact, one of the places around here the reservoirs, I don't know if you know it, but the Hackney Reservoirs, David Attenborough opened a couple of years ago, the nature reserve there on one of the reservoirs. Our campaign group here in the local area campaigned to stop the equivalent of a housing estate building. They want to fill in the reservoirs and just build housing over them. So we managed to save that fantastic natural habitat a beautiful space, the Castle Climbing Centre there now is world-class, and to, 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 as a community, be able to campaign. And that's where I always say to people, as an architect you know, and urban designer, you will have a great insight and you can help people understand place, space, and where they live. Mm -hmm. And if you can help them in a campaign to find out, well, this isn't right, I know for a fact that, that you know, they can't do that, how about you draw up a plan that would, with community consultation, you would help to save an area or to promote another area or have something included that's excluded or with your growing group or whatever all the groups are around you, 
you how you can have you know how to fill in those community feedback forms or whatever they are with a positive message and i think that that's where architects can bring value to their local community i would ask every architect to adopt a school and go in and give you know you don't have to be the stem net ambassador you can be an architect from from a student going in to encourage careers you can go in there and you can say i'm an architect and this is what I do. And I want you to design a project this afternoon. Or you have a fold-up house for kids and they have to all place it onto a map of an area. And when I did that fold-up house project, those six- and seven-year-old kids designed all of their houses kind of almost like a circle. And then, then they had the space in the middle was for all the kids to have safe play without cars. And that wow. they could see their mum their mom or their dad looking out so they felt safe. And they, and they were so clever in what they did. It was better than so many urban designers' work that I have seen, that once you give them the freedom to think for themselves, how would they really like it, give them a few pointers, they come up with fantastic projects. So in Adopt-A-School, you will be giving back something, but you will be getting so much out of it as well. Absolutely amazing. That's such a, I, I love that, adopt a school. I'm going to mm. pay more attention to my, to my local school. I've just relocated, so I'm going to look for yeah. the, my, my, local, my local school. And if they don't have like an open creative day, let them know that, you know, how about? And then four or five of you can go in. You can, you can, you know, it's good to go in as a group sometimes. And then you can have maybe two classes and you just do a, a creative project. It can be designing something for their school playground, a little house or whatever. It can be loads of different things. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. That's a, that's a brilliant, brilliant place to come to an end. But before I do, I've got one more question that I'd love to throw your way. You're an activist. You suggest we adopt a school. You know, I, that's amazing. We're, we're going to now, I think. You've got such a strong, clear, personal brand. And I think that's what's really quite powerful about the influence that you have based on that personal brand that you've you've grown over the years. And I'm just thinking of maybe practices who are starting today, young female architects who are starting today. What advice would you give in terms of growing their own personal brand in order to make real, lasting, sustainable change in society today? Well... I would say get to know your local area first. So wherever your practice is, or you move to an area where there is a lot of the kind of work they want to do. I think that bringing people on board, giving talks is another very good thing. As I say, going into schools, but also in your local community. See how you can engage with your local community, whether it be a promotion of a project or an objection to a project because of such and such, coming up with a better plan. How can you come up with a small project maybe that, that local people can, like if there's a derelict site and you want to turn it into a park, architects can often be the catalyst for change in, in many types of projects. Or you might, you might just do walks or tours. But I think that the way that you will build your practice is, first of all, doing good work, letting people visit. So you show people your project you've just done, whether it be on an open house day or whether it be an open day you create yourself. But I think doing good work, getting it published, letting people know about it on social media. If you can get something on TV, that's quite good too. And I've enjoyed doing TV. I've done three TV shows. And it's always about architecture and design and getting people to understand, break down those barriers between an architect and the public. Because too many architects speak in a language that you would hardly understand as a layperson. Yeah. And it's not necessary. It doesn't mean you're going to be clever or seen as clever. You'll be seen probably as not so clever, not to use any bad language. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but I think that being yourself, creating your brand, whether it be in housing or community centers or a mixture or a new way of working in an office, reinventing the high street needs to be done. What can you do in your local area? And I always say, have a side hustle. Now, the side hustle is the creative side, which you need, I always say, because I do glass, okay? So I've been doing fused glass for 15 years. I went on an open house day to visit local Stoke Newington pottery, 
And then I found the glass people were next door. I was so hooked on the idea of making something different because architectural glass is, is vast. There's so many things you can do or making something small. At the moment, actually, I'm making Ukrainian flags. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, little Ukrainian flags that to raise funds for the Red Cross in Ukraine. But with a completely different thing, whether you're doing life drawing or watercolors or sketching or pottery or glass, to have to meet completely different people. You hardly ever meet an architect at these things. Mm -hmm. They're delighted to hear stories about architecture. I'm delighted to hear their stories, whether they be the medics or teachers or NHS works, whatever it is. You always meet interesting people. And then these people, you're the only architect they know. So very often they come back and say, we're looking for an architect for such and such. Mm -hmm. And so many times when I've been just going into a school or something, you know, people say, oh, Angela, would you ever come into our school? I hear you are at a different school. And then they say, oh, would you be able to design this? You know, and then you find that inadvertently you're getting work for when you wouldn't expect it. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think that when you're starting out, you need to go to a lot of social functions, okay? I would have been out three nights a week from 6 to 8.30 at drink stews here or stuff there or talks there or giving talks. Always try and give a talk if you can or be in an exhibition. If there are open calls, apply and get in. Get your name noticed, get you noticed. And if you're talking the right language, as in, this is what I do, here's the problem we need to solve, we can do it this, this, or this way. I'm your person. And, um, or you go with a collective of people. So there's lots of ways. But don't sit in isolation. Mm -hmm. Don't be on your own working by yourself without interacting with other people and interacting with the general public. So I'd say go in grassroots level and work your way up. And you will be a marvelous architect. Oh gosh, amazing. <laughs> I am super inspired and like raring to go out and do something now. But that was amazing. Are there any last words you'd like to leave us with? Or you don't have to at all. It's just giving you an opportunity um, in case you wanted to say something. I think I think in in general terms, be as creative as you can. Don't settle for less. Always be go for something just just almost out of your reach. Don't be shy. Stand up for what you believe in. That's critical as an architect. And our climate comes first because we are the ones that will help solve these problems. But politically, we've got to engage with the politics to help make this happen. Amazing. Amazing. Oh my gosh, thank you so much, Angela. This is extraordinary. Thanks for listening to 29% Equal in conversation with Part W. This podcast has been created with thanks to the RIBA Research Fund and supported by Katie Lloyd-Thomas of Newcastle University. Please subscribe to stay updated.